1 Samuel 27, verse 1. Let's hear God's word. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Mao, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul <coughs> that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the uh, Jeramalites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, therefore he will be my servant forever. The grass withers, the fire fades, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, well, of course, we've been following David around as he's been running from Saul, but of course, the story of David began in chapter 16, and so for these 11 chapters, chapter 16 to 26, most likely it covers about 13 years of his life, maybe a bit more, Um, and chapters 21 and 26, where he especially is fleeing from Saul, covers at least a few years, three or four, maybe as many as eight or ten or something like that. We come now to the final section of the book, and we come to the final roughly 16 months here before he becomes king. Chapters 27 to 31 go together, and um, chapters 28 to 31 especially. In chapter 27, we see here David goes to the Philistines, and he's there, it says, for 16 months. Chapters 28 to 31 might cover 16 days at the most, uh, maybe even just a few days. Chapter 29 actually occurs before chapter 28 and Saul going to the medium. Chapter 30 and 31 happen at the same time. So all of a sudden, everything is put together here right at the end. So, remember, it's been a couple weeks now since the Colburns were here last time, but you remember last week? Or last time, remember how confident David was. So, verse 1. 
And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish some day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. What a change. Two weeks ago, and even three weeks ago, when we looked at uh, chapter 26, David is bold. He's confident. He is living by faith. He enters right into the middle of Saul's camp with 3,000 men. He takes Saul's spear and his jug of water, and then he challenges Saul in his sin. Now add to that, we've had at least a few years of God protecting David. David has certainly run for his life. He's had close calls and so forth, but God has protected him. David has learned to live by faith. But unfortunately, that changes here in this chapter. Now, let me say here, first of all, it isn't inherently wrong for David to go to a foreign land. Okay? <clears throat> it may be, but it isn't necessarily wrong. Think of when Abraham was fleeing the famine and he went to Egypt. That wasn't inherently wrong. Think of when Jacob went to Laban's house first, and then he too went to Egypt. It wasn't inherently wrong to go to a place outside the promised land for a period of time. Jesus even left uh, Israel there to go to the capitalists and then to go to Tyre and Sidon. So again, it isn't inherently wrong, but in this case, I think we have to say that it was. Now remember, David now has two wives. He has his 600 men, but they also have their families. Surely all of them are tired of running and want protection. Verse 3 suggests to us that that was why, in part, David made this decision. He says in his heart, he's reasoning, he's thinking about it, right? He's talking to himself, you might say. And now that he has two wives, now that possibly children are on the way, um, surely that's the case for some of his other men. They're just, they're getting tired of it. Think of what happened with Solomon, with his many wives. They turned his heart away from the Lord. Maybe some of that is happening here with David. If he had one wife, if he had no wives, would he have run to Philistia? We're speculating, but maybe that's the case. Whatever the case, <clears throat> he does. And notice what he says. I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. And we read that, and we're like, huh? What are you thinking about, David? But of course, we're sitting here in our nice padded pews, and we have lots of hindsight. <clears throat> but still, you're like, David, what are you saying? Samuel said, you're going to be king. Jonathan said, you're going to be king on more than one occasion. Abigail said, you'd be king in chapter 25. Saul said, you'd be king in the last chapter. And of course, <clears throat> ultimately, God said he would be king. And so how then could David die? He's not thinking straightly. Let's <clears throat> go back to Abraham here again just a moment. When he was told to kill his son Isaac, you remember his reasoning? His reasoning, as we're told about in Hebrews especially, 
he is thinking, okay, God gave all the promises to Isaac. God now wants me to kill Isaac. Well, he's going to raise Isaac from the dead. Do you see the rationale there? Promises can't be broken. Okay, he's going to die. Well, he can't stay dead for those, because those promises have to be fulfilled. So it's living by faith on Abraham's part. Um, now, many years before, he should have done the same thing. When he went to Egypt, it wasn't necessarily wrong to go to Egypt because of the famine, but it was wrong for him to be afraid of Pharaoh. God just told him, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you lots of children. Even one of your children would be the Messiah someday. But Abraham does not live according to the promises. He goes down there and he lies about Sarah being his sister, or at least it's just a half-truth, of course, and the half-truth of the wrong sort. So <clears throat> this is certainly not unique to David, nor to Abraham, and is something that we do as well. The word of God is right in front of us, the promises are given to us, and we look at it and we act like they're not true at all. The pressure, you might say, got to David, and he cracked. The men of Ziph trying to assist Saul to capture him. The men of Kela trying to do the same. Saul, of course, chasing after him. The whole situation with Debal. And then, of course, he's just trying to provide food and shelter for all these people. You might say the cancel culture got too much for David. And he gave in. His oppressive boss, chasing him all over the place, caused him to cave in. The slander and lies got to him. Maybe he hadn't written Psalm 109 yet. But instead of living by faith here, David lives by fear. He trusts in the Philistines. He does not trust in Yahweh. He trusts in his own ingenuity. There's no indication. He's talking to himself, right? So there's no indication that he is asking for counsel. And so David chose to go to the Philistines thinking that Saul would not pursue him there. And of course he's right. But that isn't necessarily the right decision. Notice his despair. He uses the word escape three times here, just in this verse. The New King James there, right about the middle of the verse, says that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. That's the verb there twice, to escape, escape. And this is how they translated it, to bring out that emphasis. And then toward the end, so I shall escape out of his hand. That's all he's thinking about, escaping. And, you know... You can't blame him, but we can blame him for living by fear. You know, Gad was with him, the prophet. Abiathar was with him, the priest. The ephod was there. The Urim and Thummim would have been there. David had every opportunity to seek the Lord, and he does not do that here. Did Abiathar and Gad object? Or did David keep some of all this inside and they just are following the king? I don't know. But remember, the prophets and even the priests are to restrain the king, even the king-elect. And they don't do that here either. Well, again, it's easy for us to sit here and say, David, what's the matter with you? Why would you do this? But, you know, we've done the same things. Maybe we're not being chased by this crazy man throwing spears at people. But we've all done the same thing. 
At some point, we get tired of the fight. We get tired of the battle, and we give in. We give up. Instead of overcoming, instead of persevering by faith, we make fearful decisions. So this morning we talked about slander and gossip and those kind of things. Hey, maybe it's very common when you get, have some family get-together that there's all kinds of words being thrown around that really shouldn't be said. And maybe we continually try to fight against that. You know, well, you know, Grandma, you shouldn't say those kind of things, or, you know, whatever it is. And week after week, or you know, month after month, whenever we get together, we're, we just get, we get tired of the battle. And so instead of living by faith and standing up for what is right, we give in. Or maybe you've been very disciplined at surfing the web, and you have not gone to those sinful places, maybe in months or possibly even years, but something happens and you just you give in, you cave in, you're tired of the battle. Sometimes that battle is very overwhelming. Maybe we grow impatient with God because, you know, things are just really hard at work and we, we just, we're tired of it. We want another job or something. Or, or, or maybe our, our marriage is, is not so great or some other relationship get difficulty and instead of persevering and living by faith, we give in. Okay. We all have made decisions not to live by faith but to live by fear. Some of us do it on a regular basis. I think we could say all of us do, but some things are more severe than others. And when we do this, of course, it leads to problems, more problems. Now, as I started here, what a contrast to chapter 26. We read that chapter and we're like, yes, David, he's our hero, right? Let's emulate him. And okay, fine, but... <clears throat> Not now. What a change. All right, let's keep going then. Verse 2. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So verse 1, he's thinking about it. Verse 2, he actually does it. All right, now turn back to chapter 21 here just a moment. This is now the second time David goes to Gath. In chapter 21, verse 10, Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So here he is again. Now that time, you remember, at least a few years before, he was alone. David may have had a few people with him, but that would have been it. David was vulnerable. And the people of Gath, when, when they found out who David was, and they excuse me, they realized that this was the man who killed Goliath. David panicked and basically pretended like he was a crazy man and he was able to escape. This time David comes and there are 600 men. David is a formidable foe and Achish now sees an opportunity. David could be a useful mercenary. Now maybe Achish was not very friendly with Goliath's family. And maybe he didn't really care that David killed Goliath. Maybe it helped to advance Achish in some way. We don't know. But at the very least, we can say 
The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this is what's motivating Achish. Saul, of course, is his enemy, and David is the enemy of Saul. So, hey, David can be on my side and help me. And, of course, he has those 600 really good warriors. That would be great. So here's David going to Achish again and thinks that Saul will not find him there, or at least not track him down. All right, now one last thing here about this verse. Are we talking about the same Achish? Certainly we have the same name, but did you notice the difference? In verse 10, it just says Achish, king of Gath. Here it says Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. So is it the same guy? We just have more details here. Or is it actually a different man? Is Achish a title, like Pharaoh or Caesar? Possibly. We don't know for sure. But whether it's the same man or not, obviously David goes there and Achish says, yes, you can stay. So verse 3, so David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. All right, now imagine that. Hakish says yes, and <clears throat> maybe he doesn't realize how many people are with David yet. And, you know, it, it's like, you know, more hobbits and dwarves keep coming, you know, to, what was it, Bjorn or whatever, <laughs> okay? Uh, they just keep coming and coming here. There are 600 men with their families, it says. So if we assume... David has himself and two wives, and maybe there aren't any children yet. Uh, if we assume that every one of these 600 men have two more, we're talking at least 1,800 people. Even if it's just 1,000. Can you imagine 1,000 people descending on Harrisville? And it could have been three or four, or possibly 5,000, depending on how many children these men had and how many were married and so forth. Can you imagine the family tradition trying to keep up with that many people and sheets and subway and so forth? I mean, this would have been overwhelming for this town of Gath. All right, so verse 4. <clears throat> and it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Saul's intel is working again. Maybe it's the men of Ziph. Maybe it's Kayla. We don't know, but somehow Saul learns of this. And, of course, David's plan worked. God opened a door for David, right? God opened the door wide for David and Gath. Well, <clears throat> not really. Okay. Sometimes success is a sign of God's displeasure. Now, in chapter 24 and in chapter 26, where we raise the question okay, about discerning God's providence, it can be very challenging sometimes. Do not fall prey to the idea that just because something worked, that that is what God wants for you. Sometimes something works because you're living by fear and you're not living by faith, and God allows that success to take place to teach us something, maybe even to punish us in some way. Living by sight, living by fear is often successful. And David here is doing quite well, and we're not even to the rest of the chapter yet. 
Okay. <clears throat> but David should have been able to discern God's providence. By the time we got to verse 4, David should have been saying, this isn't right. David had God's promises to be king, but he's living as if that were not the case. As we saw in chapter 24 and reviewed briefly in chapter 26, we have the word of God. We have the promises of God. Discerning God's providence is a challenge. But it's not as challenging when we're steeped in the scriptures. When we are in the word of God, when we are seeking God's will, when we are seeking godly counsel and so on and so forth, it's much easier to discern God's providence. And so just because a new job offer comes when your job is not going so well, or maybe just because somebody is interested in you, even though your relationship with your spouse is kind of on, on the rocks, so to speak, at the moment, just, just because using that relationship technique, like a cold shoulder or, or something like that, just because it's effective doesn't mean that God has opened a door in that relationship. And so don't necessarily think that smooth sailing is a sign of God's pleasure. Sometimes it's the exact opposite. And so let's rely on God's word. Let's rely on God's spirit. Examine your hearts. Heed godly counsel. Again, David, there's no indication he asked Gad or Abiathar or anything here. All right, well, verse 5. Excuse me. Then David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? All right, obviously David wants to live somewhere else. Uh, I think it's probably fair for us to say, because you know, David's not doing so well here, but he is a believer. It's not, not like Saul. And so I think David is being thoughtful of the people of Gath. Again, he's watching all these people, family tradition, trying to feed this, you know, massive group of people. And he's like, okay, this is a burden. We need to go somewhere else. And that's probably part of what he's thinking. But David also wants to be alone, as we're going to see the rest of the chapter. He wants some freedom. He wants the ability to do really what he wants. Maybe the Philistine gods and the religion of the Philistines and Gath were getting to him in some way. Whatever the case, he asked about going somewhere else, so verse 6. So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. All right, let's look at our maps here just a moment and uh, see where we are. Now, remember, chapter 26, David was over near Carmel, wilderness of Maon, in that area toward the Dead Sea. He comes all the way up to Gath. And now he's being sent south and a bit westward to Ziklag, 20 miles or so uh, here to this place. And so now up to three or 4,000 or whatever people could have their own town. Now notice that this is far enough away to give them some real freedom. Okay. Now even for us, 
if we were to go 20 miles or so, right, up to Franklin or down to Butler or over to Mercer or something, you know, and, and that's a very different community, isn't it? And that's even more the case, of course, with David. We could get there in a half hour maybe, but he might take a day or two to get those 20 miles. But um, still, it's a different location. And so, therefore, there's a lot of freedom, not nearly as much oversight here by Achish. So it's strategic for David, but even strategic for Achish. Because now David, his new mercenary, can help defend the southern border of Philistia. And, of course, now Gath can return to normalcy, with David and the rest leaving. All right, now notice how the verse ends. <clears throat> it says, to this day here, the kings of Judah. Um, now, some people will take a statement like this and say, well, see, look, the, the whole book was written well after these events, okay, possibly 100 years after the events or something like that. I suppose that's a possibility. I think it is far more likely, as I've been saying all along, that this was written by Samuel himself, at least up through chapter 16, and then probably Gad or Nathan wrote the rest of it. And it makes far more sense, in my mind, that First Samuel was written basically about the time David became king. And so shortly after these events here these, in these last few chapters... And that, yes, all of Israel needs to support David as king. And so it's in that time frame. But this particular phrase, this clause, was added maybe 100 years later. So I don't think it's the whole thing was written that much later, but just that part was added in. So just a brief comment in that way. All right, verse 7. <clears throat> now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. All right, so as I've said uh, at the beginning, right, these last chapters cover this amount of time, and the last four chapters, just possibly even just a few days. All right, now let me mention this here briefly. The Hebrew actually is a little ambiguous on this time frame. You could word it in such a way to make it very clear, but it isn't. Uh, you can translate it this way, a year and four months, that the Hebrew permits you to do that. Um, but it also could be translated something like a time of four months or even four months and a few days. It is possible to translate it that way. So there is a bit of uncertainty here. It's possible that David was only in Ziklag for roughly four months, but it's also possible that it was a year and four months. Okay. Whatever it is, David's not there just for an overnight nor is he there for years and years. And so we're getting close to the end. This is possibly even 1010 BC by now, or 1011 BC, or something like that. All right, but our main point here then is simply David is a political fugitive. He is in exile, but things are going pretty well for him. He has his own place to live, he has a lot of freedom, his family is safe now. Living by fear sometimes works pretty well. God also is very gracious, is he not? But we see now in the rest of the chapter that David doesn't just sit around. He's not just, you know, playing his Xbox or something. He is still king-elect. And so in verse 8, <clears throat> And David 
And his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. All right, well, if you look at your map here again, basically head southward. You see where Ziklag is, at least on the map that I've been using. You see the Negev there, um, and that's southern Judah. You see Amalek, obviously the Amalekites. Keep working your way southward, and eventually you come to Shur, and you make your way westward, and you come to Egypt. If you have another map that shows a, a, a broader view, you surely can see that. Okay. So this is where he's going. And notice also just briefly uh, that term Giz, uh, excuse me, Gerzites, your translation may have Gezrites. There is some textual variant there. But whoever they were, David is going and attacking them. So the obvious question for us is, is David doing the right thing? I mean, is it okay for us to just, you know, grab 600 men and go start tra- chasing people down and killing everybody? Well, remember, David is the king, and the king has the duty to fight off Israel's enemies. Now, Saul is still king, officially, and he has been somewhat successful over the years in defeating Israel's enemies, but obviously not completely. Think of the Amalekites in chapter 15. Think of the Philistines, obviously, multiple times. And so I think we need to see David here as acting as king and that he is finishing what Saul started. But even more so, David is finishing what Joshua started. You remember when Joshua came in and broke the back of the Canaanites? Possibly, you know, we could say he conquered 90% of the Canaanites in the land. But the last 10%, whatever the actual number was, right, the the tribes were to remove. And, of course, they didn't do that. Judah did okay, but the rest of them didn't. And so we then have the story of the judges. And because of Israel's sin, those remaining peoples rose up. Peoples from outside, of course, came in, attacked them, and so on. And so we have this back and forth, the judges um, delivering God's people and then people sinning and so on and so forth. But... The tribes were to finish what Joshua started, and they didn't do very well. And so they asked for a king to do that. And here now is David doing that. And by the time David dies, he's really done that. There aren't very many people groups left in the land. And the ones who are are now enslaved. Think of what Solomon did, for example. So um, David, I think is permitted to do this here. But this is unique. It is not something that you and I are told to do. We are not to go around wiping out any remaining non-Christians that live near us. Now, spiritually, yes, we are to take every thought captive. We are to bring down principalities and powers through the word of God and the means of grace. Yes, We are, wherever we go, we are to fight all of our enemies in that way. But not literally, as David is doing. So I would agree with those who would say that David is doing the right thing here. But we're not to emulate him, at least not literally. 
All right, so let's keep going then. Verse 9, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. So to use the language of Joshua, David executes the ban against the men and women. Again, finishing the conquest, something unique. Now, there were times that Joshua was to completely destroy everything, like in Jericho. But that wasn't the case in every place. He was to, to destroy the people, but not necessarily all the spoils. Not every time. And so David here, then, is taking the spoils of war and likely keeping some for himself to feed all the people. But also, as it says, he brought them to Achish. David is serving him. David is really his mercenary. And so this is what he's doing, and it, and it makes sense. And David, or excuse me, Akish obviously is very happy because now he has a bunch of loot. And, you know, we can stock the shelves again at uh, Subway uh, and after all that David and his, his family ate and his men and so on. But also the southern border of Philistia is now being protected. And so Akish is very happy for all of these reasons. All right, verse 10. <clears throat> then Achish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeramalites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. Now, we're going to see this next week, too, and, and even in chapter 29. But David speaks um, kind of vaguely as he is asked these kinds of questions. Again, if you, if you look at your map, uh, these are areas, again, south of Beersheba, way down in the south and so forth. And, and so what David says is not wrong, but it is understood differently by Achish, as we will see. Now, before we add the next couple of verses, you remember the Kenites? Do you remember that they were um, uh, people in the south? Remember, Moses married into the Kenites. I remember his father-in-law Jethro, he was from the Kenites and so forth, right? And remember that some of the Kenites came with Israel into the promised land. Remember also in chapter 15, when Saul went to kill the Amalekites, he said to the Kenites, you need to leave so I don't kill you accidentally. Well, in this case, David is killing them too. Because... I think, again, he's permitted in this way. All right, well, let's now bring in verse 11. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. Now we're, we're uh, maybe get a hint in verse 10, but now here, especially in verse 11, we get the idea that David is not being completely honest with Achish. Okay. We're learning that David is being somewhat deceptive. David left no survivors, in part, to keep Achish and the other Philistines in the dark. And so for four months, or a year and four months, David is doing this. So verse 12, <clears throat> So Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore he will be my servant forever. Akish is totally deceived. We'll see that 
in the next chapter, also in chapter 29. He thinks that David is fighting against Israel and thus against Saul. And so David can never return to Israel. So he has to stay in Philistia, right? He's going to be a perpetual mercenary for Achish, he's thinking. But of course, what's actually happening is that David is not only fighting against the enemies of Philistia, he's fighting against the enemies of Israel. He's not actually fighting the Israelites, but he's defeating those in the south that had come in, just like the Philistines had come into northern parts of Israel, at least further north, and uh, these other peoples had come into the southern parts of, of Israel, and David is fighting against common enemies. He's not fighting against the Israelites. So David here then is endearing himself not only to Achish, but also to the people of Judah. No surprise, David has established his king in Judah first. Not just because he's from there. But of course, Achish here is completely oblivious. So, we come here again to this question of half-truths. How do we handle this? How do we understand this? As we saw in chapter 16, God himself told Samuel to take a sacrifice and, can you say, pretend a little bit to deceive Saul? God himself told Samuel to do this, to preserve life. David, when he went to Ahimelech, I think is doing the same thing. He's seeking to preserve the life of the priest by not telling him everything. Of course, it didn't work. But I think what David was trying to do was justified. We saw Michael do this with David. She said that he was sick and he was sleeping and so forth. And this allowed time David for David to escape. And, and yet, she does come right out and lie about the situation. Whereas in the other two scenarios, you don't see that. Later, we see, of course, David and Jonathan. They say that David had this event, this new moon festival with his family. And so they tell Saul this. But the whole purpose was to expose Saul's heart. Now, as I said in that chapter, it doesn't clearly say that David and Jonathan lied. It is quite possible that David's family had to get together like this. But obviously, they're not saying everything. In chapter 21, when David went to Achish, he clearly does lie. He said he was mad when he wasn't. And now we have this one. David is telling Achish some things, but not everything. He told, that he de- told them he defeated the Philistine enemies, and yet he doesn't say anything about defeating Israel's enemies. And, and let them assume that David was fighting against Israel, too. Now, on the one hand, David is doing this to preserve life, to preserve his life and the life of all of his people with him, to protect them from Saul and so on. Yet, I think we have to say that verse 1 is dictating everything in this chapter. David is living by fear, not by faith. And that's not to say that David did not have any fear with Ahimelech or, or um, with David and, and Jonathan and Saul and all of that. But the text here clearly does emphasize David's fear. And so I, I think we have to conclude in this scenario that David did wrongly. 
that one sin led to another. As we read through the chapter and now have gone through it verse by verse, did you see God mentioned anywhere? God does not speak. God is not mentioned by anyone. David never seeks God's advice through his prophet or priest, none of that. So I don't think that we can emulate David here. As I've been saying all along, sometimes success is actually a sign of God's displeasure. David is being very successful here. He may be permitted to do what he's doing in this kind of broad conceptual way, but this isn't quite right. What would it have done if David would have said to Achish, look, I'm going to fight against the Amalekites and so on and so forth, and this is going to benefit you as Philistines, but it's also going to benefit my people Israel. What would have been the harm in doing that? And if Achish said, okay, well, get lost, then God said he'd protect David. So I don't think we can justify David's behavior here. We might be able to justify finishing what Joshua started, but all the lies and deception, no. And so there have been times, like chapter 26, where we look at David and we're like, yes, this is a man that we can follow, we can emulate. But then we have passages like chapter 25, where we don't follow David, at least in some ways. In other ways, his response to Abigail was quite good. But here, a mixed bag. We might understand David's fear, we might understand it and sympathize and empathize and all those sort of things, and yet David really is choosing the wide way here. The way seemed right to David, but it was leading to death, you might say. David is living in fear, and yet God is using David to defeat the enemies of Israel. David is protecting his family and his men. He is gaining wealth. He's probably even learning some from the Philistines. Remember that the Philistines had taken all the weapons of Israel, or almost all of them, so maybe he's gaining some more weapons. And so those things, may you could say, are very good. And yet, David's lying. He's deceiving. And the Philistines are sworn enemies of Israel and God. David is doing all these things, and yet it's interesting when we get to the end of the book and even into 2 Samuel, there are people of Gath that are with David. For all of David's sin, it appears that some of them may have accepted Yahweh. But isn't this the way we all are? We're just a mixed bag. Some things we do are pretty good. Some things aren't. And God, in his grace, uses us anyway. This isn't to justify our sin. This isn't to excuse it or anything like that. But as we see the failures of David, do you see even more the grace of God? God working here in his providence to bless David even in his sin. Isn't this what we saw in Psalm 108? That even in our sin, we can praise God. We can have confidence because God will hear us even in our sin. Now, David's not crying out to God here yet. (laughs) 
But God, like with the judges, he would send them a savior, even times where they never asked for it. And so, I, I think this is how we need to understand the chapter. For all the details, do you see God who's not even mentioned here? Do you see God's grace? Do you see his goodness? Do you see how David is a sinner? And David needs his own son for a savior. Not just us. One last thought here then tonight. And this takes us back to the original context. 1 Samuel was written in part to convince everybody that David is the one they want for their king. Do you see how chapter 27 is an apology for David? Yes, David lived by fear, but he'd never fought against Israel. Yes, he lived with the Philistines, but he never fought against Israel. That's obviously a very important point if you want someone as your king. (laughs) And David didn't hire CNN to spin everything either. Um, Then notice also, also this point. David is a sinful man, and yet God brought success to David anyway. Note the contrast with Saul. Saul is a sinful man, and his whole life is falling apart. Chapter 27 begins a final contrast between David and Saul. We've seen that all along, but now we have this final one. Here is David. He's living in sin, and yet God is blessing him anyway. In the next chapter, Saul lives in sin, and look what happens. And so the immediate point here is, look at this contrast. We don't want another Saul. We want a man after God's own heart, a man who's imperfect, and yet we want David as our king. Remember this when you go to the the voting booth here in a few weeks or so. These are the kind of men that we want. So anyway, a few thoughts here tonight. And so Lord willing, next week we will look at Saul's sin. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again uh, for your word and and though sometimes it's like even we saw this morning, it, it can be challenging. This morning, it was, it's not challenging to understand. It's just a challenging topic. Here, it is somewhat challenging to understand. What, what should we learn from this? But Lord, we um, are thankful for your word nonetheless. And, and this does appear to be its message. And we thank you, Lord, that though so many times we are like David, And so many times we live by fear and not by faith. And there are times when that happens and we have success and you bless us anyway. Sometimes we don't turn to you, we don't look to you, we don't pray to you. You seem to be completely absent from our lives and yet you're graciously working in us anyway. Not because we deserve it, but because you've made us your children. And for this, Lord, we give you thanks. But may we not sin that grace would abound in some kind of flippant way and careless way, but may we obey you 
and rest in your sin, your grace, and not rest in sinfulness, and not rest in uh, apathetic, um, presumptuous things. Lord, we, um, we know we're such mixed bags, and, and uh, we are thankful that you love us anyway, and that you don't wait for us to be good enough to, to save us or to, to give us blessings. And uh, we just thank you for these things, Lord. And so we, we ask uh, then that you would seal these things on our hearts, that, we might, that it might encourage us to live by faith and not by fear. And so we pray all of this then in Christ's name.